Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence, those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. Welcome everyone to the podcast, Everyday Nonviolence, where we explore ideas and concepts of active nonviolence and the ideals of pacifism and their interplay with real-life situations. I am your host, Joanne Perry. Today, we're going to explore the inspiration and value added to social movements by music with FNVW member, activist, and local musician, PJ Hoffman. We'll learn some of PJ's personal story and then talk more generally about music and social change. Welcome to our podcast, PJ Hoffman. We're delighted to have you, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. I'm going to start by hopefully learning a little bit about your involvement with social justice. How has that played out in your life? Well, it started out very early. I was raised in Massachusetts and in Niagara Falls, New York, and in both places, my parents were involved in, in fact, started local peace groups. They were involved in Ban the Bomb and anti-nuclear weapon efforts, as well as the civil rights movement. And in fact, my father quit his job for two years in the early 60s to be a part of Congress of on Racial Equality, CORE. He worked in the civil rights movement for a couple of years. As a young teenager, I participated in an anti-bomb demonstration and a couple of civil rights marches. Also in 1965, I went to Committee for Nonviolent Action. That's a farm and training center in Valentown, Connecticut on the Rhode Island border and took part in anti-war demonstrations starting in 1965, organized in part by that group. So I went through junior and senior high school as kind of a, a person who didn't cooperate with school, but was very interested in righting wrongs in the world. I admit I must have appeared a bit arrogant to the elders I'm sure I was. I know I was hard to handle. But at, at age 18, I decided, because I was not doing well at school, I would want to make a career out of nonviolent social change. And uh, so instead of going to college, I went to Pendle Hill, a Quaker study center near Philadelphia. And I was drawn there because George Willoughby was running a program, an eight- or nine-month training program for nonviolent actionists. And it's exactly what I wanted to do. And I was young. They didn't want to take me at first, but I went down there. I hitchhiked, as I recall, and then convinced them that I was probably mature enough, barely, uh, to participate in their program. And I did that for a year, spent a year in England working with the English friends, the Quakers. I became a Quaker in, in the process, by the way. But with the friends, I worked as a youth emissary for a year 
in England and actually through part of Europe as well. And when I returned to Philadelphia in 1971, it was, just beginning was the Philadelphia Life Center and Movement for New Society. Movement for New Society, often called MNS, was a very integrated, ambitious effort to bring about revolution through nonviolence. It integrated both nonviolent action and alternative living. I did that for a, a number of years. Uh, went down to Georgia to help form a group, a movement for new society group there. And in 1978, I came to the Twin Cities to join up with the movement for new society group here. I continued my social change work until about 1982. And then I started raising a family and had to earn money. And my attention uh, really focused on alternative economics. And for the past 35 years, what I did is work primarily with food cooperatives to help them work better. I ended my career as a store designer. I spent 30 years as a store designer with the food co-ops. I know we're talking about music today, and I know you're a songwriter. I know you're a musician, and I know you've got this focus of social change and social movement. So why don't you tell me a little bit how you uh, got into the music, because you've talked about the exciting times of the, of the 60s and the 70s, but there was more to this piece. Well, yeah, I think it was just a great time. When I think of the early 60s to the late 60s, there was so much cultural flowering and people coming together and music being exposed. I know when I, when I was 12 or 13, I began learning about all kinds of songs that were not part of my background. My background was Methodist hymns and German polkas. I mean, that's really what it was. And when I began, began playing music and being involved in folk music, it just opened up a whole world of music for me. And then, of course, pop music began being a lot more experimental in the mid-60s. So it was a very, um, a very rich time to learn music. I focused on folk music. I began playing guitar when I was 13, was part of a folk music trio that began doing original music. And that's when I began writing music. In school, I played violin, piano, tuba, and French horn. I did really well on the instruments I taught myself. I did very poorly if anybody tried to get me to do anything. And so it <laughs> just a little quirk of personality there. How did you make yourself keep learning then? The music? Yep. The challenge of it. I mean, music just goes on and on. Mm -hmm. It seemed like I would learn to do something or learn a certain kind of music, and then I would be driven to try something else. I ended up writing almost 250 songs and maybe 40 or 50 instrumental pieces. Wow. Yeah, so it really caught on with me. I think what I felt is that the music was being accepted by at least the people I was associated with, that it meant something to them as well as me. I want to say something about the 60s, though. The 60s, the folk music boom lasted only a few years, but it had a real lasting effect on music. And I remember the hootenannies and people singing together, and the kumbaya mo moments. I mean, those we make fun of that now. But those were great times where people were learning songs and singing together. Everybody had a guitar. They were writing their own songs and writing topical songs. And many of the songs that were written by the singer-songwriters had to do with anti-war or anti-injustice themes. 
it was just a great time uh, to, to learn music. Music seemed to be very accessible in those days that everybody could, if maybe not close the door to their bedroom if they didn't have their own bedroom, but they could go to their garage. And everybody had a rock and roll band. And before that, everybody had a folk music band. Yeah, it wasn't so technical. I mean, the, the productions that you heard on the radio were just like garage bands. I mean, I'm better than that. But, you know, it wasn't like it's totally processed sound like you get now. And so it was well within reach that anybody with, who could play four chords could play rock music. I'm going to ask you if you'd be willing to share one of your songs with us then. Sure. Uh, here's a song I recorded with a group of friends a while back. So what you're going to hear is a recording. It's an acapella one. It's called Until We All Know Freedom. And I, I sang this song before a group recently, and they said, you know, one of them did. That's, that's like a sea shanty. That's like the sailors responding to a, uh, a captain. And so here it is. To all our neighbors, to all the earth, one to all the earth, we're here to say, we're here to stay. One, we're here to stay until we all know freedom. We see the world, it needs to change. Wallace needs to change, a change so deep, the struggle long. Wallace struggle long, until we all know freedom. A revolution lies ahead, whoa, it lies ahead, and we can think and love and act. Whoa, we can love and act, until we all know freedom. As we get strong and the road gets rough, whoa, as the road gets rough, we'll learn and grow and carry on. Whoa, we'll carry on until we all know freedom. Love is strength and truth our sword. Whoa, and truth our sword, and unity from struggle comes. Whoa, from struggle comes until we all know freedom. And when regained and our power shared, whoa, when our power shared, the common good will be our joy. Whoa, will be our joy because we'll all know freedom. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It was an incredibly diverse milieu of opportunity for different kinds of music that had not actually shown up in the common cultural patterns. I was a fan of, of classical music. There was space for me there, but there was also the spirituals, the uh, rock and roll, the uh, pop, the, of course, the folk songs and the movement, the social movement songs. It was a whole different time. And I know you've got a great number of examples of how you were able to access uh, some of these possibilities. Yes, there was a magazine called Sing Out. And I had a subscription for many years. Mm -hmm. And they had seven or eight songs in each issue. And I would learn about half of them. And they were international. They were labor songs. They were singer-songwriter topical songs. 
And sometimes I would buy a, a songbook from the, the sponsored songbooks at the back of Sing Out magazine. And I still have some of those collections right behind me. And I just learned song after song and learned what makes a melody tick and why some lyrics hang, why they become important and why they catch and why some don't. And I use a lot of that in my songwriting. Well, this podcast is an outgrowth of FNBW's Watch a Wednesday series, which you recently helped facilitate. Would you be willing to describe that event briefly and talk about some of the key highlights or learnings that you received from that gathering? Well, thank you. Yes, we had a great time. We had a general discussion about the role of protest songs in social change movements. And the first movement that we thought of where music was a really important part of was the labor movement, starting in the late 1890s and lasting through the 30s and 40s, for sure. And there were just tons of music, Solidarity Forever, Which Side Are You On? Uh, all kinds of songs like that. And then we, we thought that the next group of songs that were attached to a social change movement were the civil rights songs. And these songs came out of work songs as well as spirituals and were adapted specifically for the experience of the struggle that went on for civil rights. And I remember when I was a kid, my father brought home an album of a, of a chorus, a black choir of some kind, and they sung in a very Southern fashion. And it was all of these civil rights songs. And I got up and I was dancing and singing. Just filled, it just filled my heart with joy. So back to the workshop, after we looked at uh, some of the, the history, oh, we, we looked at songs that uh, were used in the women's movement as well in the late 60s and particularly in the 70s. But then we brainstormed songs, songs that we could think of that fit into three different categories. The first category was songs that were really individual expression. This is how I feel. This is what I think and so on. And an example of that would be If I Had a Hammer or Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Even some of the civil rights songs like I'm On My Way to Freedom Land is really about individual expression. The second group that we brainstormed, the second category of songs, was those that in reinforced or created internal solidarity. And a few of those songs are We Shall Overcome, Hold on, keep your eye on the prize. Solidarity forever, as I mentioned before. And the final category was tell the world. I mean, we're going to use music to tell you exactly what we think. And some of these were almost like individual expressions, but really were, the audience was the whole world. Like John Lennon's Imagine or Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan, the Ballad of Joe Hill. And some people in the session mentioned that the Black Lives Matter chants were a form of music that were intended to tell the world. Sounds like a fascinating discussion. Note that the Watch Show Wednesdays are a series of virtual gatherings conducted most weeks, during which participants explore nonviolence as a strategy. More information is available on the FNBW website. That's FNBW. Org. Why do you think music is so important to protest? 
Well, first, it's art. When, you, when you're practicing art, you're putting a different light. You're putting a different expression on something that you might have already experienced or are experiencing. And it highlights it, and it makes you think about it. There's a great, great song that was written in the 1930s, right at the beginning or in the middle of all of the lynchings that were going on of black people, young black men for the most part. It was written by a young Jewish person, I forget his name now, and was sung a lot by Billie Holiday, and it's called Strange Fruit. People listen to it. It is a remarkable, remarkable song if you haven't heard it. What it does is it talks about lynching in such a way that you'll never, ever forget it. And that's the power of art. Uh, the other reasons why music is so important in social change efforts is that it gathers the spirit together of people and it amplifies the message. It creates unity among the people who are part of it. I mean, just think about clapping along or singing along and it reinforces the focus on the issue. I mean, it, it keeps everybody's attention on something. It adds spirit, it adds energy, and sometimes it adds humor. And finally, to the people who are taking part, it's therapeutic. I mean, we often get a sense of failure or we're afraid while we're doing nonviolent action or taking part in things. This combats that, and it also discourages anger and disruptive behavior. That actually leads me to my next question. I mean, you talked about the social movement early, and then you went on to a career and a family and all the important things in life. But what keeps you going? Because here you are today, actually uh, making a stand and talking about the importance of music and social, as social change instrument. What keeps you going? What make, made you come here? What keeps me going is my ongoing, enduring concern for all of us. And when I mean all of us, all of humankind, I really do believe that we're all cousins. I think brother and sister is a little too close for my taste, <laughs> but we're definitely related. We're all, we're, we're all cousins and, uh, and we belong together and we're 99.9% .9 alike. The differences we have, our social constructs, their fears that we have, their, their divisions that we've created for one reason or another. And what I really want us to do and what really drives me is the idealism that we can find common ground, we can solve these problems, and we can create a much fairer and a much more peaceful and environmentally responsible society. Do you have personal memories of hearing or performing music while you were working for social change that you can share today? Yes, I mentioned earlier when I was talking about my youth, that in 1965, I worked with CNVA. We went to Washington, D.C. and took part in something called the Assembly of Unrepresented People. It wasn't strictly an anti-war. It was more like, let's gather all the people who are working for change in one place on Hiroshima Day and Nagasaki Day, August 6th through 9th, 1965. Let's bring them together in a large protest. And so that's what happened. And the protest culminated in civil disobedience. At that time, you could actually protest on the steps of the Capitol building. And that's what they did. I was too young to be arrested. But it was quite an, quite an experience for me as a young person to be part of that for three days 
culminating with all these arrests and busloads of protesters being carted off. And so one of the things about music at that time is that the first groups of people that were there seemed to be urban people. I remember seeing young people, I think they're college age, at that time much older than me, and they were from New York City. And they arrived and they had their own style, a bit sullen from my taste now, but they had their own style and they would sing certain songs. And I remember one of them, and it was about Robert McNamara, who at that time was the Secretary of Defense. And this is to the tune of Mac the Knife. McNamara, McNamara, he defends us every day. In a war now, at our door now, 7,000 miles away. North Vietnam, South Vietnam, have their troubles like the rest. Why are we there? Must we be there? Ask McNamara, he knows best. And there were about five other verses. And then about halfway through the demonstration, busloads of civil rights workers began arriving and they would literally pour out of the buses clapping and singing. And I heard songs like, like, ain't gonna let nobody turn me round, turn me round, turn me round, ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. I'm gonna keep on a walking, keep on a talking, marching down the freedom land. Very different. I mean, that, it was just struck me how the tone and the spirit of the two kinds of music were so, so diverse. Another experience I had was when I was working in Europe, based in England, I went to a demonstration. It was a two week walk in Southern France, which I took part in. And the walk was to go from Southern France to the Spanish border to help pressure Franco, who was the dictator of Spain at the time, to allow for conscientious objections to war. If you didn't want to serve in the military in Franco Spain, you were immediately thrown into prison. You had no choice and you were gonna be there for a long time. And so that was the march. And we started out in Perpignan. We started out with just maybe a dozen people. And you know, miles later, we were two dozen. And as we got, went through the Pyrenees Mountains, we began getting bigger and bigger. And I didn't know it at the time, but there was a festival at the bridge, at the bottom of the bridge that would go into, into Spain. I was asked to be a key performer in the festival. So I went up there and I sang a couple songs and there were several thousand people. They were milling, not paying attention. And I was singing. And then I reached in my back pocket. I remembered a song by an American singer songwriter, an Afro-American by the name of Leadbelly. And he had written a song called Bourgeois Blues. It was written about he and his wife, Martha, looking for housing in Washington, DC and being turned away again and again by white people who didn't want African-Americans uh, to, uh, to live in their buildings. And so he wrote this very angry song, Bourgeois Blues. So I began singing it. And you, most of these people were French or a lot of them, they all spoke French. Anyway, all of a sudden, I started singing bourgeois blues, and they started paying attention. Then they began singing with me. And then every time I said bourgeois, they would yell it back at me. And I had this big crowd yelling, bourgeois! 
back at me. And it was like, all of a sudden, I felt like a rock star. Must have been very young at the time. I was 21. It's an impressive feat. There's something about something slightly different, a song in the middle of a crowd or a whisper in the middle of the crowd that slows the crowd down and makes all the potential in the world happen just at that moment. It must have been a very powerful moment for you. I think performing has times like that. Talk to any professional musician and 99% you feel like you're being unheard. I mean, you're doing your music, you're doing your gig. Um, unless you're uh, touring and you have adoring fans, by and large, it's, it can be a very lonely experience. At least that was my experience and I hear from a lot of other professional musicians. So when it does catch on, when you catch on with an audience, it really, it's very precious. Thank you for sharing that memory. Um, I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to sing something else uh, that's been especially important to you or others during doing this work? Sure. This will be another song that I wrote. And this was written for Movement for New Society when we were having a hard time. It's called Come Alive. And it was written as tongue in cheek. Come alive. We are the revolution. And the idea is we were poking fun at ourselves. But the life of the song went beyond Movement for New Society and was taken seriously. I remember going years later, going to an event and somebody sang, here's a, got up and started singing, here's a folk song I just learned. And they started singing Come Alive. And I was, uh, I was amused. Um, I'm glad. So here it is. This is a studio recording of Come Alive. All right, tape rolling. Yes, everything is going all right We're gonna plant some seeds We are the seeds We're gonna plant some seeds We are the seeds Come alive We are the revolution Come alive we are the revolution and everything is coming. Yes, everything is going all right. We need some sunshine. We are the sunshine. We need some sunshine. We are the sunshine. Come alive. We are the revolution. Come alive. We are the revolution. And everything is coming. Yes, everything is going all right. We need some spirit. We are the spirit. We need some spirit. We are the spirit. 
are the revolution. Come alive, come alive. We are the revolution, and everything is coming on. Yes, everything is going all right. We need some changes. We are the changes. We need some changes. We are the changes. Come alive. We are the revolution. Come alive. We are the revolution, and everything is coming. Cause everything is going all right. Thank you. We spoke about another song that had real meaning to you. Uh, the name of it was My Life Goes On. Can you speak a little to that? Sure. It's actually a hymn called How Can I Keep From Singing? Uh -huh. And it was published in 1868 or so and was adopted by 20th century Quakers. And so this is how it goes. My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet, though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear the music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? There's so much more we could talk about for this podcast, but that song feels like a closing statement to me. Music has been such an important part of my life and I'm very happy I had the opportunity to share some of that experience with you today. Thank you, and keep singing. PJ, thank you. This has been delightful. Thank you for having me here today. And as long as I'm thanking people, <laughs> we should also thank the audience for their time today and to let you know that this podcast is sponsored by FNVW, Friends for a Nonviolent World, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect official board position. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, extraordinary people speaking truth to power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org.